All right, you can have a seat except our kiddos who are in the first through sixth grade don't have to listen to me talk, huh? Are you guys excited or what? <laughs> first week back in uh, hanging out with people you actually want to be around instead of me. Congratulations, ladies. Uh, my daughter is particularly excited to not have to listen to me talk after... Uh... <laughs> yeah, you're sure I don't have to listen to Dad. Okay, I will go if I don't have to listen to Dad. So um, being, being a bivocational minister, having a, like a job during the week kind of thing is uh, actually, uh, I really like it. I enjoy it. I, I like it a lot better than, honestly, when I used to work full-time at churches. But there are weeks when it's a little more difficult than not. And this is a week where we put on the Hattiesburg Half Marathon, 1,400 runners all over town. I mean, it was like this big undertaking. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of exhausted from it. And I'm going to be honest and tell you that when I was going through notes, because um, I wrote this sermon basically just, you know, half-conscious, and there was, there was some literal nonsense that I had written. I went back, and I, I couldn't make sense of some things that I had written. So I say that ahead of time, just in case one of those things uh, get, got by me, even, um, you know, going back through the redactions. Um, just know that, you know, I'm not, I'm not drunk on the communion wine or any of those kind of things, but it was just one of those weeks uh, where, you know, I, I wasn't kind of <laughs> operating at 100%. But... Um, I just couldn't be more excited to have you guys here. I couldn't be more excited to see some faces that haven't been back in the room in a long time and see some new faces. And um, I'm excited about uh, the passage tonight because this is, honestly, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It is a weird story. Um, There's some strange things that go on in it. Um, But I personally find a lot of hope in this story and a lot of grace in this story, and I hope you will too. Let's jump right in and we're going to kind of read a couple verses at a time and then talk about um, some, some parts of, of what we read. And there's a couple things I want to uh, talk broadly about at the end, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get you out of here to enjoy the, the beautiful weather out there. Um, I, I'm just happy we still have uh, Hattiesburg after the rainstorm that came through the other night. So, uh, all right, we're in, we're in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 20. Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, this is post-resurrection. This is after Jesus has been crucified, but the disciples have not yet seen a resurrected Christ. And, uh, and we're in verses 19 uh, through 29 uh, tonight. So here's, uh, we'll go through it again. Like I said, stop and start and stop. But let's look at uh, 19 through 20 to start with. It says this, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So you have this strange little scene here uh, that really get a, uh, kind of give you some nods into the mystery of resurrection. Uh, I am one of those people that will tell you I believe in resurrection. I don't pretend to understand all the details or all the machinations of it. And I don't trust anyone that can or that does pretend to fully explain it because we don't have all the full answers. And this story is a great example. There's some weird things going on here, right? We have a resurrected Jesus, um, and you have uh, some things that are not normal for a normal person happening, right? You have someone who can just appear in a locked room. I don't have that skill. I don't think any of you have that skill either. Um, So we have Jesus appearing in this locked room. He says, peace be with you. This is the the exchange that Christians have used ever since uh, with each other, and something that is often said when there's some kind of angelic or heavenly visit and it freaks people out. This is the way of saying, calm down, everything's fine. He says, peace be with you. And then he shows his hands and his side. And one of the things that I actually think is most interesting 
uh, if you look at it in the order of things here, is that uh, the disciples only kind of believe and get excited. It says they, they only see the Lord after they see the scars, right? After they see where the wounds were, right? Not after someone magically appears in a locked room, which seems to make a pretty good case for something uh, impressive happening, right? That's not what does it. It's not hearing the voice saying, peace be with you, that they should be very familiar with because they've been listening to this person talk for years. It's not the appearance. It's not the voice. It's seeing the appearance of the scarred. It's seeing his hands and his side, right? And I think that's just, I just think that's a really, and this is a whole other sermon that I should write at some point, but I think, uh, I think you can recognize a God by their scars, and I think that says something, and I, and I just like that principle, right? So, so it appears that the resurrected Christ is both like Jesus was and also unlike Jesus was. There's just kind of a little bit the same, but also a little bit different, right? He is physical, but he can also walk through locked doors. He speaks um, uh, to followers, but in many stories, they don't recognize him by his voice alone, right? He is healed, but he still bears scars for what has happened on the cross. The, the resurrection doesn't erase what happened before, but it somehow redeems what has happened before, right? It all gets at this kind of mystery of what we talk about when we talk about resurrection. And, and in this story, again, he's finally able to be recognized by uh, the scars that were left from his uh, previous wounds. Uh, verse 21 through 23 says this, Jesus said to them again, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in Hebrew, spirit and breath is actually the same word. Those are always very strongly connected in Scripture. Um, in fact, when you remember in the creation story, that's, you know, he, uh, God forms uh, Adam out of the dust and then breathes into his nostrils, right? Uh, and the word is what, ruach, I think, in, in Hebrew. Um, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So here we have the resurrected Christ um, now handing off the mantle of his ministry, of his ministry of healing and forgiveness to this ragtag group of followers that had run away and locked themselves in a room after the crucifixion. These are hardly your A-team folks that you want to send out to accomplish uh, the job that you have. And after sharing his scars, he shares his spirit and his authority, right? He tells, them, uh, he tells them that being a carrier of his spirit brings with it some authority, some meaning in what we do in this world, right? If they forgive someone, it matters. If they refuse to forgive someone, it matters. And this is a profound moment for these frightened disciples to not just see and hear from Jesus again, uh, but to see how his wounds have become something else and to be told about a power that they have in this world that they may not have appreciated before. Verse 24, But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And I've always wondered why, right? Why? Now, one of the things you know, if you've spent much time in church, you know that Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas has, uh, is known as Doubting Thomas. Uh, it's, it's not a cool nickname. It's not one you would want. Um, and it's really not fair because all these disciples have run and hidden and have been scared. There is not a faithful one in the bunch right now. None of them have, you know, are, are believing that Jesus is coming back yet. None of them are convinced of it. No one has any room to give Thomas a nickname. In fact, you might be able to argue Thomas is the one person not locked in the room, Right? 
You could argue Thomas is showing more faith than any of the other ones by not hiding in the room uh, when Jesus shows up. We don't know where he was. I don't know. Maybe he was like in a second room that had two locks on it. Maybe he was more scared. I don't know. But um, who knows? Maybe he, was, maybe he was braver than everyone else, right? So, but he was not there when Jesus shows up. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and yuck, put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, uh, not super sanitary, uh, I will not believe. So unless I get to experience what you experience, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, no, Thomas doesn't even have to ask, right? He says to Thomas, put your finger here and and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him. We have no idea if Thomas actually followed through with the touching and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. And then the gospel wraps up with, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. All right, so again, here's where Thomas gets the bad name, which again is, I think, unfair. I'm not sure why it is wrong for Thomas to want to have the exact same experience everyone else has. He has the same reaction when he sees the same thing. He does the exact same process, he just does it later. Uh, he is no more doubtful than any of the other disciples. He doesn't ask for anything more than any of the other disciples. He only doesn't believe the disciples' word. And guess what? A week later, they're still locked in the room. I probably wouldn't have believed them either. Like, Jesus appears, shows them the wounds, like, breathes the Spirit on them and tells them that they can go out and they have power in this world, and they're like, awesome. And a week later, they're still in the room telling Thomas all about it, right? There's zero doubt to me that I would have reacted and acted the same way Thomas did. I would have wanted those same things. I don't blame him. I love this story. In fact, I love it so much, I really struggle with what to preach about because there's like 12 different things in here I would like to talk about. And, uh, and I'm not going to go more than an hour and a half tonight, so I can't get to all 12. Just kidding, new people. I'm not going to talk that long. It won't be very long. I love the story, but, but there, are, there are so many things that resonate with me. I, I resonate with scared disciples questioning themselves uh, and their faith locked in a room, right? Been there, if not physically been there. I'm also in love with the idea uh, that the Gospels create such an unusual, uh, just strange picture of resurrection, right? There's both continuity and novelty. It's like life before death, but also unlike it. It's a body that's redeemed, but somehow still scarred. It's real and fleshy, but it's also a little bit ghostly and mysterious, right? It's kind of heavenly and earthly all at the same time. If, if someone was creating a fictional account of their God, you know, beating death and coming back after uh, the dead, I don't think this is the story they would write. It's just a little too messy and strange, right? I think it'd be a little more grandiose uh, if you were just making something up. And so some people may think I'm naive, but I think this kind of weirdness to me makes it just more realistic uh, and more believable to me. I just, I like it. And I just think this is such an important story to read the week after we celebrate Easter and we make the big proclamations of resurrection and life after death. 
So much of Easter is so full of hope and optimism, and that's so good. But stories like this, and even really the Easter story we talked about last week, it keeps our feet kind of firmly in the dirt, even as we look to bigger and more eternal things. And I am of the belief that a practice of Christian faith should be found squarely in that place. Looking towards the heavens, but feet still on the earth. Still struggling, still trying to work out what, how to do things in this difficult world in our messy, unpredictable lives, right? I don't trust the quote-unquote faithful person who doesn't struggle or have their feet on the ground or have scars, And I don't really know the point of faith if it doesn't help us look beyond our present circumstances as well. I need both of those things, and they're both happening here. Being resurrection people doesn't mean that we are preaching or teaching or claiming some kind of full transcendence in this world. Things are still difficult. Our feet are still on the ground. It is still a broken world that we are still living in, and that has consequences. That's too bad we're not preaching pure transcendence because we love transcendence. We love it, right? We love a book or a teacher that promises to lift us up out of this mess in three easy steps, all of which might start with the same letter so you can remember them. Those things that promise to exalt us above the messiness and uncertainty of our families, our health, our weight, our productivity, our doubts, right? How to, to teach us how to rise above the difficulties of the world and make millions and produce kids that will do the same, right? We love transcendence. We love this get-out-of-the-mess-free card, but that's not what's offered here. The story is very earthy. It's very messy. There's fear. There's hiding. There's doubt. There's scars. There's breathing on other people, which is just weird nowadays to even read that, right? Did any of you have a little bit of a reaction when he breathes on them? Like, you're not allowed to do that. Believing in a resurrection world, I, I think, is about leaning into that space where heaven and earth meet. And that kind of tension is where faith is found. And there's two things about this that I want to just cover real quickly and we'll be done out of this story that in that place where heaven and earth meet. The resurrection world leads us into the truth that yes, we are a temporary people. Yes, we are dust and to dust we shall return. Yes, all that is on this earth goes away. But what we do here and now, how we treat each other here and now is of eternal consequence. And this is the calling of the disciples, right? The life they live is a mission undertaken. What we do here and now is of much deeper importance than we want to admit. Forgiveness and unforgiveness has deep and abiding consequences for our neighbors. I've always struggled with this passage because what do you mean if I forgive someone, they're forgiven. If I don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Isn't that God's job and not my job to forgive or not forgive? And I've always kind of struggled with that. But the truth is that there's, there's a real truth to that. I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, something that, where maybe you've done something wrong and you've sought forgiveness and the person wasn't willing to give it to you. And even though I know I'm forgiven by God in, in whatever eternal or spiritual sense, 
there is a burden that comes with knowing that there's a person walking around this planet that can't forgive me. In a very real sense, I still carry that weight. There's a lot of importance in how we treat each other. Jesus breathing the Spirit into his followers and handing them his mission does not make us God, but it does entrust us with God's work of healing in this world, here and now. That is what we are to be doing, and that matters. (coughs) It is a reminder that there's a little bit of eternity in our love, or lack thereof. And the call to God's grace in this world has unending value. And this love and this grace are both deeply difficult and vulnerable acts to take part in. But as Scripture tells us, true love lays itself down for another, right? Resurrection people lean into this mission. We don't shy away from the fact that what we do here and now has eternal consequence and matters. (coughs) Excuse me for coughing. I had to call out like all 1,200 runners' names as they came across the finish line, and my throat's, I don't speak from here, speak from here, not a good sign. Hopefully I'll still be able to make it through this. Otherwise, just consider it a dramatic pause that's really giving weight to what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> but resurrection people, I think, lean in to the idea that what we do here and now has eternal consequence. And then in that vein, and this to me is what is most poignant about this passage, being resurrection people doesn't mean we believe that all the things that have happened to us are just gone but it's, it's, it's a matter of owning the messy truth that while our wounds can be healed, our scars often remain. And that's okay because our scars are this persisting reminder of the mending that God still does in our lives. Now, we feel like they're ugly to us. And unfortunately, then we misjudge these scars, these marks as needing to be hidden from each other. But nothing could be further from the truth. They shouldn't be hidden from each other because they are, in fact, the things about us that bear the strongest witness to the redemption of God in the midst of our imperfect lives. And through the magic of resurrection, these scars of ours become a source of faith to others. That is my favorite part about this passage. Faith comes through Christ's scars here. And he presents that same mission to us, I believe. And we just have to be willing and vulnerable to share them. And I don't know about you, but I am a complete hypocrite when it comes to life scarring. I want more than anything else to hide mine from you. And I want nothing more than for you to share yours with me because they give me a lot of hope. And that's not fair, but that's kind of my posture in general. I want nothing more than for others to be vulnerable enough to share their scars with me because I find so much healing in that place. In many ways, I don't know that my faith has ever been more vibrant or real to me than in the period of time when we we used to have and work at uh, the Hope House. And I'm realizing now that it's been so long ago uh, that a lot of you may not even know what that was, but there used to be a house in town. We ran a day shelter for the homeless. Uh, Like, it wasn't just a church project. There was a lot of churches that helped out with it. I got to spend a lot of time there because of where I was in life and um, spent a lot of time each week with folks um, 
who, I mean, honestly, they, 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 they couldn't have hidden their scars if they wanted to. But what I loved most about Hope House and the, the studies we would do there and just the time we'd spend around the breakfast table and that kind of thing was it was just this weekly exercise um, of, of, uh, of a wounded show-and-tell. <laughs> People didn't hide uh, the messy stories in their lives. Uh, in fact, occasionally it became one-upsmanship, which probably isn't helpful. But everyone shared everything, right? No one was playing at being perfect. No one was playing at acting like nothing was wrong. People wore their scars on their sleeves. We all saw what was wrong with each other at that place. Uh, and I loved it. In fact, uh, the, the, the culture of it was such that when I would start to click into that mode of trying, of, which I, you know, I grew up in church, so this is, this is how I was trained to be, to act like everything's okay even when it's not. Um, I felt stupid when I would start to do that, right? Uh, that felt like the weird thing to do. And week after week after week, having these conversations and being a part of these difficulties with people's lives and, and, and being a part of the mess, um, it, it lit my faith up. It, it took it to a different place than it had been before. <clears throat> um, it is opposite of the church I grew up in. I'm thankful for the church I grew up in. I'm thankful for what I learned there, for meeting God there. Um, but we uh, didn't talk about anything that was messy uh, at all. You did not let other people know about that stuff. You know, it only came out on accident and then became a prayer request we all talked about behind your back, you know, the way the Lord intended. I'll be honest, I hope we are more like Hope House than the church I grew up in. Now, a couple of counselors in the room are getting a little uncomfortable right now. I'm not saying don't have good boundaries. I'm not saying don't uh, treat your wounds with the respect they deserve and allow the healing to take place at the pace they need to and all those things. Yes, please. But may this never be a place where we hide our scars from each other. Not just because, you know, hey, we're going to try and keep it real, but because other people in this room need to know they will find faith in your scars the same way you find faith in theirs. The truth is, for my life, everyone, literally, I can't think of a single person who has really shown me God, not a single person who has really shown me God that has not also shown me their scars. I, I can't think of a single perfect person that I've learned basically anything about Jesus from. Everyone who's ever shown me God has shown me those scars. In other words, they followed Christ. And honestly, I think, I, think we can, I think we can end there for tonight. <clears throat> With the good news of resurrection. Not as some weird ethereal ideal for the great by and by one day, but as the flesh and blood miracle found in the millions of ways you and I have already been healed and in the place where heaven meets earth in our scars and our stories. May we take up that mission of Christ. Because in the end, these scars and these stories of ours, uh, the ones that are written in our hearts and on our bodies, 
They are there so that, to quote the scripture we read earlier tonight, others may come to believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, they may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are a God of scars. That you're a God of vulnerable, self-sacrificial love. That you are not some disconnected voice that remained in the clouds, but you took flesh and blood and dwelt among us. You are a God incarnate. A God who lived and breathed and bled and wept. A God who had a heart that was broken, hands that were uh, pierced. And God, we know that faith is found in your scars. That we can realize and recognize who you are as God through those things. May we be followers of that God. The God who offers up the mess for the benefit of others. Thank you for a resurrection that gives us the strength and the power and the authority to do that very thing. God, we do love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.